If you try to be something you're not or try to conform yourself to somebody else's norm, it's exhausting, right? It's just exhausting. So you have to learn to get really comfortable in your own skin. And I think for women in general, the confidence level has to really come forward. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. How long have we been talking about diversity? How long do we have to keep talking about diversity? I think one answer is, you know, maybe we haven't talked enough about it, but there's a better answer, a much better answer, and that's that we haven't done enough about it. You know, on the one hand, we all understand why minorities and women are underrepresented among the leadership class of American businesses. On the other hand, it's simply unfathomable that here we are at the beginning of 2021 and continuing to debate and struggle and lament. And it's unfathomable to me because I take the very simple assumption that businesses want to make money, they want to be successful, and that any organization wants to be as successful as possible, and I don't think I'm going out of much of a stretch to say that they want to be as successful as possible. Well, how do you do that? Expanding the talent pool to include all potential great talent seems mindlessly obvious. And somehow it isn't. You know, this is uh, one of the themes in my most uh, recent book called Superbosses. Let me share with you two quick anecdotes from that research and from that book that make the point about diversity and how incredibly illogical it is to not strive for maximizing diversity as an end in itself for business reasons, even independent of ethical or moral or fairness reasons, which are very important. But even if you didn't care about that, there's a strong business and an overwhelming business example or business rationale here. Jay Shiat, founder of Shiat Day, very big advertising agency, and their heyday was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, kind of like the Mad Men, if you've seen that TV series on AMC. And you may be going to guess what I'm about to tell you if you remember that series, because what was missing at the top of those organizations, both the business side and the creative side, you know what was missing was women. And Jay Shiat, the founder and CEO of Shiat Day, he saw that, he recognized that, and he said, well, that's nuts, that's crazy. And he went out of his way to try to identify high potential women in the media industry and even casting a wider net than that. And it doesn't mean, you know, you have a fast track to the C-suite, but at least there's an opportunity. And it turns out that if you go down the line another four or five years after that effort started, Shia Day had more women in senior executive and creative positions than any other firm in the advertising industry. And of course, that paid off. Or how about Bill Walsh, the legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers in the National Football League? Bill Walsh is acknowledged as probably being the most influential coach in terms of developing talent in the history of the NFL. But the story I want to share with you now is what he did when he too recognized this situation that to him was an imperfection, an inaccuracy, a weakness in the marketplace for talent that didn't make any sense to him. And that was that there was a group of ex-NFL football players who had the brain power, the interest, the aptitude to become an assistant coach and eventually potentially a head coach. But they had never been given the opportunity. Why? Because they were African-American. And Bill Walsh saw that and he said, that doesn't make any sense at all. And so he created the first NFL program to try to develop ex-NFL players who happen to be African-American that have this interest and potential to be an assistant coach and then a head coach. And lo and behold, what happens is that over a period of time, almost every one of the African-American, the black head coaches in the NFL can trace their lineage to the Bill Walsh tree of talent. And he made an impact. He made a difference. And both these cases are examples, you know, Jay Shiat. Bill Walsh, both of these examples are about diversity, but actually the initial impetus, the logic for why in both instances, Jay Scheid wanted to extend the talent pool to include women and Bill Walsh wanted to extend the talent pool to include black ex-athletes. There was a business case, an overwhelming business case. And unsurprisingly, I think the research on diversity, the academic quality research on diversity is overwhelming. Diversity wins, diversity pays off, and diversity could be measured in lots of different ways, not just gender or race, although those are two of the most critical dimensions to be sure, but any way you want to measure diversity, more diversity leads to better decision making. 
It's hard to argue anymore clearly, right, that we know this, but here we are in the latter half of 2020 and we've learned that many of the problems of sexism and racism stem from this underlying systemic culture in society. And the truth is it means that solutions will need to come from structural and fundamental changes in legal and regulatory and societal ways. I know all that. I understand that. But I don't want us to forget, I think it would be a mistake to forget about the role of any one individual person to make change happen and to change things for him or her and for their teams and for the people around them. For some time, for example, I've tried to highlight female protagonists in some of the case studies I teach to my MBA students. I don't need to make a big deal out of the fact that the CEO is a woman because I want students to think that it's normal, as it should be. Unremarkable, in fact. The truth is we do end up talking about it because it still is remarkable. But I'm striving for the time when, okay, well, this is another CEO to talk about and analyze and understand. The fact that she happens to be a woman is not going to be a defining characteristic. We're not quite there yet. But I've also gone out of my way to invite leading women as guest speakers for much the same reason as well. You know, again, I know these types of things are not going to solve the problem of female leadership in organizational life. There are many causes. There are many factors. Of course it won't. But I could assure you that it's going to help. Because anytime we bring and show female leaders as role models where they get center stage, something happens both for men and for women. And what happens is that they see this is normal. It's normal. And women can aspire to it. And men can understand that there's nothing unusual about that. Well, I recently had a chance to spend some time with an extraordinary leader who happens to be a woman in a traditionally male-dominated industry. Someone who went to engineering school when there were very few women in engineering school. In fact, I think she was one of three women in her entire class. Someone that had to struggle to prove herself and prove herself again as her career has taken her, or actually to be more precise, as she has taken herself to one of the most senior positions in one of the biggest companies in the technology sector. And actually, interestingly, a part of the technology sector few people really understand and think about. I'm talking about the cable industry. And the specific company I have in mind is Charter Communications. And the person that I'm bringing to you on this episode of the SIDCAST is Stephanie Mitchko Beal, the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer, and the Executive Vice President, the multi-billion dollar Charter Communications. Stephanie Mitchko Beal is an Emmy award-winning media executive. She has several key responsibilities at Charter. She oversees their network, mobile, video and software engineering teams, as well as network architecture, technology policy, and emerging technologies. She joined Charter from a small startup where she was essentially running the company. She was also CTO, Chief Technology Officer, but also COO, Chief Operating Officer there. But for the bulk of her career, she was a senior executive at Cablevision Systems, another major company in the cable industry. Currently, it's part of Altice USA. So you know in the SIDCAST, I like to talk about a lot of different things including the theme of diversity and what it takes for a woman to rise to the top of a long-standing traditional technology company. I mean, it's a great story, but there are other parts of the story that I'm going to talk about with Stephanie as well, including what the cable industry is actually all about and how technology is so central to what they do. And it's an eye-opener. It's going to be an eye-opener for you. I know it was for me. Most people probably don't even realize that if not for companies like Charter or Comcast, it would be very hard for us to watch all those Netflix and Amazon Prime series every night. They bring that broadband pipe into our house that enables us to have high-speed internet and enables us to have streaming. And by the way, enables us in working from home world that we're in and will continue to be. It enables us to work from home and be able to be on Zoom and Microsoft Teams and Google and all the others. But the heart of the story here is Stephanie, right? How she created her career, how she dealt with the challenges that came to her, how she thinks about diversity, and especially what she does and has done for herself and for others. This is one of those episodes that I know you're going to find very interesting, but for some people listening, you're probably going to want to listen with a notepad or an iPad next to you to take notes. Stephanie Mitchkobiel. Welcome to the SIDCAST. It's Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Stephanie Mitchkobiel. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Sid. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for making time. I know your schedule is hectic, to say the least. And you know, when I did my little preamble before we started, I talked about, uh, obviously, your background, why I was so interested in talking to you, and you know where you're sitting. But one of the things that's always so interesting, and it's one of the themes of the podcast, of the SIDCAST anyways, is how does somebody become the person they end up becoming? And I guess it's something everyone's interested in at a certain level. And so I wanted to start our conversation taking you back to you know your growing up years and 
maybe say a little bit about your parents. Were they tech people as well? Were they also, you know, scientists, engineers, tech geeks? What was that like? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, it's an interesting question. I personally feel like I was born an engineer. You know, I grew up in a family. My dad's an electrical engineer. My uncle is also an electrical engineer, mechanical engineers in the family. And um, I grew up with two brothers. I'm the middle child. I'm the sister. And, uh, you know, from a very young age, we talked about technology. We took things apart. As you could imagine, today we have early adopters. And back then, my dad was an early adopter. And we had radios and the first televisions that were around. And we learned how to take them apart. So I think I inherited, especially from my dad, this what I call voracious curiosity about how things work. Always wanting to understand how things work. And that's kind of stuck with me. Do you remember how old you were when you started to take apart stuff? I was very young, maybe five to seven, uh, where we would take things apart. And it's funny, some anecdotal things. Later in life, my younger brother actually took one of my parents' televisions apart that they didn't want to have taken apart and couldn't get it back together. (laughs) That's a bit of a Humpty Dumpty story. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, televisions, I imagine, have gotten a lot more complicated. Maybe not. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you're not in the television manufacturing business, but it just, I'm looking over, and of course, everybody's at home now and doing these podcasts or anything else for that matter. And I'm looking over at my plasma TV. Do you remember the plasma TVs? And I got it. It was a Fujitsu, who no longer makes it, of course. Actually, I don't think anybody makes plasma TVs. But the picture is really great and soft. And I'm just thinking, could somebody take apart one of these plasma? Or, of course, now more common LED, LCD, etc. Or is that like a dangerous thing, given the technology in there? Yeah, I don't know if it's dangerous. Uh, unless you leave it plugged in, you should always unplug it and make sure you give the capacitor <laughs> some time to discharge before you touch it. But yeah, they're not they're not mechanical uh, the way they were early, early on, like a lot of the electronics we have. That's why things are disposable, because there's so much electronics inside of the device. And how many times have you had something go wrong and told, well, I have to replace the motherboard or I have to replace the whole unit. And sometimes it's not even a good idea. It's not worth it. So you can still take them apart. You can take the circuit boards apart, but everything is compartmentalized into um, electronics and circuit boards now. It's not like taking tubes and connectors and wires and just being able to reconnect them and disconnect them. Did you become a mechanical engineer by training or electrical engineer or something else? Now, my degree is in electrical engineering and computer science. It's actually the same piece of paper that my father got from the same university. Wow, isn't that interesting? And my uncle as well, mechanical engineering from Brooklyn Poly. Three generations are able to talk about what it was like to go to J Street in Brooklyn and take classes in what was an old razor blade factory at the time. Wow, that's so interesting. Did you have any professors your dad had? I don't know if you remember that, but they may have pointed it out, you know, as a, I was the youngest of three boys, and this is more high school, but they said, oh, another Finkelstein, when I showed up. Yeah, I don't recall if there were any that knew my dad. They knew of him, though, once I got into the school because it wasn't such a big university. Yeah. So you ended up getting into science and engineering in particular, and you said you were almost born into it. Is there ever any doubt about that? Do you remember ever thinking about, well, maybe I'll study liberal arts first. Maybe I'll study business, uh, architecture, anything like that? You know, it just didn't happen. I was on a path in high school. I just, I loved the math, the science classes. That's what I enjoyed. I felt like I was really in tune with those types of concepts. And I hated English and I hated accounting type of functions. And I really didn't like history. I found those things just not my thing, maybe a little bit boring, seemed like more like memorization as opposed to real learning. So I didn't really think much about it. As soon as I graduated high school, I applied to engineering school and I went to engineering school. Now, were there many women in your class? No, I think I was one of three and one of them wasn't even in electrical engineering. They were in mechanical engineering. Yeah. One of three out of how many ballpark of students? Only with 1,200. 1,200. <laughs> yeah, that's not a lot. And so... Anyone that's a pioneer, as you were, I suppose, at that stage, has had to deal with various things. And I don't know if there's anything you could share that would give people a sense of what going to engineering school was like when you were one of three. Well, obviously, I stood out. The odds were on my side when it came to the male-female ratio. But, you know, there was a sense of not belonging. And I did have some particular professor that didn't think that I should be there. It was odd to him that I was there. And he was very hard on me. And I remember 
my first class, Electrical Engineering 101. This was my thing. It was easy. I was going to prove myself. And he gave me a hard time about everything. And I took a, I don't know if it was a midterm or a final, but it was a simple circuit analysis, something that, you know, in engineering school, you would have no problem doing. And I did all the circuit analysis. Remember those blue books that we used to have to write? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I did all the circuit analysis. I'm like, okay, good. I got it. I understand all the equations. And then I made a very simple mistake in a quadratic. And you know that when you have a test and there's a complex equation, the professors usually make them come out to whole numbers. I didn't get a whole number. I got a very strange output and I was working, 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 and I could not get to an answer by the time the test was over. I closed the book and I said to myself, all right, well, I got the analysis right. I'm going to get a 70 on this test. I didn't get a 70. I got a fail. And I got one point, which he told me that was because I wrote my name correctly and he failed me for the course. And the mistake I made was in the quadratic. And when I expanded it, I multiplied 10 times 10 and I wrote down 20 instead of 100. So, you know, I was devastated that I failed this class. And I told my dad I failed the class. I don't think I'm right for engineering. Maybe it's not for me. And the way that he talks to me, even today, he's like, okay, don't worry about that. Just go do it again. Go take it in the summer. Just do what you want. And don't let other people or situations, you know, determine what you do. And I think that was really empowering for me going forward. And then I I reflect on this a lot because I learned so much by making that mistake. And I'll joke about this, but it's not really a joke. You know, I learned that 10 times 10 is not 20, right? And it just sounds so funny. But to me, as I reflect on that, I think about, you know, the importance of getting things right, of paying attention. There was no reason to write down 20. I wasn't paying attention. And there was no one to blame but myself after that, because I did feel a little not good about it, about failing that class. But overall, you know, look, I got up, I did it. I went back to school and the next semester took the class and did fine and finished my degree. But it wasn't easy being the only women and not having other women, you know, young women, even to hang out with. Right. They were always the only one whenever there was a group, the only one or almost the only one in the classroom. You know, there's several things your story makes me think of. One is going to sound unbelievably trivial, but it's almost the equivalent of 10 times 10 is equal to 20. And that is, uh, I did a lot of writing, maybe unsurprisingly, in school, including final exams. I grew up in Canada and Quebec. And so there were final exams at the end of the year that everyone took, everyone in the entire province took the same exam. And then you got ranked with every kid in every school, private, public, wherever they happened to be, whatever the school district was. And so it was a big deal. And I was writing some this was English composition, as we called it. I was writing something, and I remember, it's funny how you, many things I don't remember. I remember I wrote the word of, it sounds so trivial, right? Of, and I spelt it O-V, and I'm looking at it, and I can't figure, it doesn't look right. It doesn't seem right, but I just couldn't figure it out. And that's because your brain is so immersed in way more important things than that. And of course, it's a trivial example, but maybe it's uh, my own equivalent of uh, 10 times 10 is 20. It's pretty simple, right? And then, you know, the other thing it makes me think of is um, I had as a guest on the podcast in, I think it was late October, early November, Robert Wallace, who's very accomplished entrepreneur, very, very successful. And he ran for mayor of Baltimore just in the elections now, you know, just this past month. And he didn't win, but it gives you an idea of kind of how he thinks about the world. And he went to Penn. He grew up in the projects. He's African-American, a really smart kid. And he got accepted at the University of Pennsylvania. And he had a professor who didn't, an advisor actually, who didn't think he should be there and told him that. And it got to such an extent that he was starting to do poorly in one of his classes. And he talked to his father. And his father said almost exactly what your father said to you. Don't let anyone else define yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what you can do, what you can't do. And he got back up and he ended up becoming, you know, a top student. He actually went to Dartmouth, went to Tuck School for an MBA before my time there, but very, very calm. I mean, the same type of story, right? Isn't it amazing? It is. It is. And I think there's so many people who let other people's voices discourage them. Yeah, I even heard it at the CEO level, of all things. It was in a public conversation, so I could say the name Ellen Cullman, who was the CEO of DuPont, which is a gigantic company. Not that many women are CEOs of, you know, Fortune. That might have been a Fortune 50 company, even. So she made it to CEO, but she told a story about when she was just at the C-suite, but if there is a lower end of the C-suite, and there was a succession going on for equivalent of COO 
And there was a couple of other senior executives that basically convinced the CEO and the chair that she didn't want to move to, this was a job where she had to move to Asia and she had a family and a couple of kids. And they said, you can't do that to her. She doesn't want to go to Asia. It's going to be so disruptive. And she was so furious when she discovered this. She said she would never let anyone else do a thing like that. And I think that lesson is just it's such a powerful lesson for people at any stage of life. Did your experiences as uh, one of three women in engineering schools, in what way has that kind of changed or affected how you think about your own job or yourself as a leader? And of course, you started in technology, right? So, you know, you were in a male-dominated industry right from day one. It probably wasn't all that different. Yes, you're exactly right. It got worse. Actually, after I left school, my first job was working for a subcontractor to the Department of Defense because that's what most electrical engineers did. They went to... um, subcontractors, either building planes, ships, helicopters, and software. And I recall having to go to brief different parts of the military. This was DOD, and we worked for the Naval Research Laboratory in Virginia. And I was the one bringing the technology solution to the table, but they barely acknowledged I was in the room. It was like the three other people that were with me had to say, oh, no, 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 you have to talk to her because she's going to tell you about what that system is. I worked in weapon systems. So I just got very used to being the only woman in the room. I got very proficient at making myself present, meaning sit at the table, make sure you have a voice in the conversation. Don't worry about when they ignore what you say three times and come back to you, right? Like you kind of get used to that, but I didn't accept it. This is going to sound funny, but I really saw myself, my own self-image was like, I'm just one of the guys, right? I'm just like everybody else in this room until, you know, you show up or you look in a mirror and you go, no, you don't actually look like the rest of the people in that room. So it was very difficult in the beginning. I think I had some really great support as a young engineer, you know, working through my career. I think even though I had to work twice as hard to prove that I had just as much talent or knowledge or can contribute in the same way as lots of other men, I just kept going. So I never let any of that defer me from doing what I wanted to do. And then kind of later in my career, and obviously today as well, there are more women, right, in the business. There's more women in technology, not as many as I would like. The numbers are still staggering when you look at percentages of women and men in the careers of engineering and software. But there's much more um, acknowledgement around having more women and more diversity. And it's kind of something, because I lived through all of that, it's really uh, front and center for me. I spend a lot of time mentoring young women through a whole bunch of different organizations. And it's fascinating what you hear from them today. Even today, where we think everyone has, you know, women are fine, go to school, you can work anywhere, you can do whatever you want. They ask really hard questions like, what should I wear? And that sounds funny, but they think that because they look different or they, you know, they're not dressing like everybody else, that somehow that's a problem. So what I talk about this a lot, I'm like you, my whole attitude through my whole career has been, I can't be anybody else than who I am. So the fact that I'm a woman and I show up dressed like a woman, well, Mm -hmm. that's just the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. And if you try to be something you're not or try to conform yourself to somebody else's norm, it's exhausting, right? It's just exhausting. So you have to learn to get really comfortable in your own skin. And I think for women in general, the confidence level has to really come forward. And I learned, one of the things I did learn from all my men colleagues is women tend to overanalyze and men just say, okay, I could do that, no problem. So, you know, half the time a man would come in the room and go, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to do A, B, and C, and that's going to be done. And everyone would go, yay, that's great. Go do it. And the woman would be sitting there going, wait a second, A, B, and C is only 20% of the solution. What about all these other things and overanalyze? So I actually took that as a lesson is I'm not going to overanalyze anything. I'm going to say, here's the three high-level topics, and then I'll go figure it out later because it's a behavioral difference. And I think a lot of these things are really educational, by the way. There's a lot of talk about, you know, the differences between men and women in the workplace, especially in technology. And I belong to a lot of women's organizations. And that annoys me because like women talk, of course, we all experience the same things. How about we talk in a bigger forum with men and women and talk about, you know, behaviors and why women communicate differently or why men communicate differently and just bring the consciousness level up a little And then I think things will continue to get better. But for all you women out there, my advice is, you know, just do it. Just move forward because your abilities are there. We just sometimes we get in our own way. Yeah. Do you ever get, I don't know if the right word is frustrated, but 
little discouraged because people who you may be mentoring are telling you things that happened to them that happened to you 20 years ago. And it's just sometimes it feels like, yeah, we've come a long way, but it never ends. Yes, absolutely. Yes. We talk about, and I'm in a big company and we spend a lot of time on diversity and diversity and inclusion. And, you know, diversity can turn into a numbers game, which is just a game of numbers. You know, do you have the right people. What really has to happen is inclusion has to happen on a whole bunch of levels. And that's exactly what you just mentioned. It's like, I hear the same stories from young women today that I experienced in the last 30 years of my career. And those very simple behaviors and experiences are still happening. And it's fascinating to me that that's the case. And even in my role today, I still run into those things, except now I point them out, you know, in public, right? I go, you know, Sometimes you have to say to someone, you know, that like that makes me or even anybody else feel this way and feels like you're discouraging me or disparaging me. And they go, I didn't mean it that way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you meant. That's what you did. Exactly. So, yeah, it is a little discouraging. And like I said, I work in a bunch of organizations and I don't know if there's real impact happening on the one-on-one level. If we're really making a difference in corporate America, in my industry, in technology in particular, and finance is another area where the numbers are not great. We don't seem to be really making that much progress. Even though, as you said, the numbers on paper look a little bit better. I mean, I don't know actually what they are other than when I face groups or even the group that uh, you're a leader of, the SCTE group. And we've been doing an executive program with this group of people that are cable industry uh, executives at director and vice president level for the most part. Over 10 years, the number of women has increased dramatically, but it's still, even this past year, you were a guest speaker there. Maybe, I don't know if it was 20%, so it was still there. It's not 50% right? Which is where we would like it to be. I think one of the issues in technology is women don't stay in it because of the environment. However, what's great about technology is it's more conducive to life in general. And I think one of the reasons I stayed in technology, I have three kids and I raised my kids while I was going, you know, working and technology gives you, at least technology careers, give you the flexibility to, like we're doing right here, right? Working remotely, we're talking to people online. This is not new. It's just now because of the situation of COVID and other things, most people are getting more comfortable with it. But we've been working like this for the last 20 years in technology and software, where people can be at home, people can be remote using email, video conferencing and chats and things like that. So I think today it's easier, I'm not saying it's easy, easier for women in particular to stay with technical careers. I want to see if we could just dig a little bit more on something you said that is really important, which is, you know, the fact that the same problems keep occurring, even though, yes, we're all better, but the same problems are still occurring. Either there's more, you use the word education, right? Either there's a need for more education and a very deep level, but younger women need to learn a lot of skills and how to deal with it. And younger men or any men, but let's say younger men at the same level, they also need to recognize that they're partners in this scenario. This concept of men as allies has been picking up a lot of steam, which I think is a great idea. And then I also think about the difference between mentoring and sponsoring, you know, where mentors give you advice and goodbye and sponsors give you advice and then help you get to that next level and are almost like playing coaches for you. Do you say a little bit about some of these things, some of the things you've seen that work or maybe don't work as well, because that would be really useful. You nailed it. The difference between a mentor and a sponsor is really, really important. And a lot of women that I talk to and men in my companies too, who ask me for advice, ask me about what they should do in their own network and what they should do for themselves to enhance their careers. And I love the mentoring thing, but I only like it when you implement it the right way. From my perspective, the mentor is someone who calls you on your shit, who literally says, you know, you're telling me this situation, but you are really part of that and you're doing this, this, and this, and maybe you need to change what you're doing. And the mentor has to have your best interest, right, in mind, your personal interest, your career interest, and give you advice that makes sense for you. And I tell people, these are not family members, right? Don't choose your family to be your mentors because they always have slant. The advocate, on the other hand, is someone who's maybe in your company, uh, maybe in your peer group, or maybe in another company, but can influence what's going on in your company and can help you chart your path in a real way, like open doors, 
bring your name up to other executives about, you know, maybe work you've done before. Highlight what you've done in order for a bigger group to understand your capabilities and what you could do. So the advocate inside, to your point, is with you all along the way. And I'll say I've been extremely fortunate in my career to have many of both, both men and women advocates in the companies I've worked in and mentors, both, you know, professionally hired mentors and people I know. I also have something called a personal board and people like go, what is that? I go, well, you know, I'm the CEO of my life. That's how I look at that, right? So I have a group of people. They're not my family members. Some of them are from industry. Some of them are friends, uh, not real friends, but people I know, who, you know, acquaintances who have different perspectives. And when I want to make a really big decision, I float it out there like you would to your board of directors. Like, I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking of making a change. I'm thinking of going after a different type of job. To your example earlier about the woman who was, you know, someone said they didn't want to move. You know, that would be something I would float out. Hey, I have this opportunity, but here's what it means. I got to uproot my kids. I have to move. It might be a relationship thing. So I found that over the years very helpful in my decision making because you just get other perspectives, right? You, you kind of get out of your own head and, and listen to people. Right. I think that's a great idea. And I imagine you are uh, returning the favor to some of those people on occasion as well. Every day at four o'clock, I have somebody on the phone. Is that right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's important what you just said. That's what it takes. This is not just a uh, nice to do, um, you know, once a month. You got to work at this. This is work. So I want to talk about the industry. I want to talk about, I mean, so many things happening technologically, and that's one of your primary areas to be sure. But let's get one thing out of the way about the cable industry, right? Which is historically, customer service hasn't exactly been outstanding. But what's changing? What's happening now that's making it better or has the potential to make it better? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I've been in cable for many, many years, you know, uh, almost my whole career other than a few stints in other places. But yeah, customer service is a difficult and challenging role for a cable company, uh, really for any telecommunications company. And I think what's changing and maybe what made it difficult that has made it difficult in the past is really visibility and exposure to what's really happening at the customer site. Remember, they're remote, right? They have a piece of equipment in their home or they have something going on in wiring that's not even in their home. It could be outside in the plant. And what's happening now in customer services, and we could talk about data forever, but there's a lot of data available from the network, from the home and within the home that customer service reps have access to. So they have a better insight into what can help the customer because we all know that getting on the phone after talking to three people, telling you to reboot again can be very annoying, right? So we're really focusing on making context and contextual customer care available to our service reps. And it's a huge priority and there's been a lot of great progress there. What's also happening is with the digital technologies is that customers can now interact with the, with the company through applications, through websites, through apps on their phone. They can manage their own equipment through an application on their phone. They could do all the things that people would call for, most of them, through what we call no-touch or digital-touch technologies. And that's really empowering the customers, right? They get more information. And simple things like putting a notification into an app, if you are waiting for a customer service rep to come to your house for whatever reason, you will get notified when they're en route, just like you do when you order a pizza from uh, someplace or you're getting your food delivered, you get a notification that it's on its way. So all of those things are making the customer experience better for you know, solving problems that the customer has. Yeah, that's a great example. So simple, right? <laughs> Just notify the customer. Well, yeah, that's going to help. The thing I've learned about the cable industry that I didn't know when I started working with people and is just how unbelievable it's technological powerhouse that cable is. I had not understood that. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about, you know, what are some of those cool technologies? We don't have to, you know, really geek out to things no one's going to understand, especially me. But, you know, there's machine learning, there's AI, there's this 10G thing. But then there's a lot of practical things that are being used all the time. And customers can see some of it maybe through streaming. I don't know. But can you give us a little glimpse of just what's going on in the back office in terms of technology? Yeah, I love this question because I like to say, you know, this is not the cable of 25 years ago when mm -hmm. you were just getting a video signal and maybe some aggregate channels uh, sent down a pipe to your home. 
the cable industry is really filled with cutting edge technology, our network technology, how we move things across the backbone of the United States and keep we in our charter, we have 41 states connected and 30 million customers across all of those that have access to high speed data, access to the internet. But what I think is fascinating in the last maybe five to 10 years in cable It's been the digital conversion. So anybody who has service from a cable company knows that they can also get their full television experience on an application, right? On an app on their phone, they can get it on your PC, you can get it on your Mac or on your iPad, et cetera. So the whole experience of cable is now digitized. And what that does is that lets us do really sophisticated things to your question about data and AI and machine learning, making the experiences better and more uh, adaptable to the customer's needs by using these new technologies. So the fact that we develop digital applications that run on Roku boxes, Apple TVs, Android phones, we have engineers who do very similar things that engineers do in some of the big tech companies. You know, we have to run a huge business. So we're constantly looking at ways of using technology to take transactions out of the business, to make the business run smoother. And to give us, you know, just better experiences for the customer. So I think it's, you know, I could go on and on and go into a lot of detail about the technology, but it's a really interesting place to work everything from. And I run a bunch of different groups. I run our network group. I have a software group. I have a technology policy team. I run a Wi-Fi group. I run a mobile group. And you can imagine that all of the technology and all those verticals, how complex and interesting it is. But the real challenge that I like to look at is what that all looks like when you put it together. So there's a lot of tech that makes up a big network. Right. Wow. That's interesting. I have a couple of follow-ups for you as well. So, you know, with COVID and so many people working at home, I bet a lot of people are like me. We have Comcast in this area where I live, not Charter. But I got as much as they had. I told them back up the truck and I got a gig coming in the house. Of course, I don't get close to that because the Wi-Fi doesn't enable you to do it and devices don't enable you to do it. But I'm getting like super fast speeds. So I guess the first thing is the broadband business must have just exploded with COVID. Maybe you could share a little bit about that and also how you've been able to keep up because I don't know that you had all this excess capacity to deal with something that no one knew was going to happen until it happened. Yeah, so the cable companies in general and Charter in particular have invested a lot of money in the networks over the years to stay ahead of capacity. So I'll say when COVID hit, we were pretty well situated to support our customers. But to give you some insight into what actually happened, we had millions of customers go home and they were now working at home, learning at home having telemedicine appointments, right, from their home computers or on their Wi-Fi, on their networks. And we saw about a two years of our projected increase on the network happen in the first three months of COVID. So not devastating, but something we had to really pay attention to and watch because the behavior was very different than what we'd seen, even to your point about, you know, if a bunch of people in your neighborhood are watching Netflix at eight o'clock at night, that's considered peak and there would be some shared congestion there. But what we saw with COVID is people were now utilizing the residential network. They went from their offices where we call it, you know, business or enterprise network to the residential network and they were doing all of these things. So we actually were on a path to using a lot of data to manage our network. But this situation, actually instigated us to go faster, which in a way was a good thing. We had a bunch of data available to look at how the network is behaving, to help us understand what we should be doing, how should we do augmentation, where are we having problems and where are we not. So we created in a matter of a few months, a pretty sophisticated data analysis platform, big data platform to analyze the network data so that we could pass that information along to lots of different people and parts of our organization so they can understand where congestion was happening, if it was, what they should be doing about it, how we should deploy our resources. The other things that we used during this time, and COVID pushed it, although we had it on our roadmap and we were doing it already, is something called self-install. Consumers basically install all their own equipment these days. But in the cable world, you know, someone comes and brings your modem and brings your Wi-Fi router and installs it and hooks it up in your house. We quickly had to pivot. Not that we weren't doing self-install, but it wasn't front and center. We made self-install front and center so we could send equipment to people and not have to have our employees out there, right, for all the reasons that people went home. We had to keep our employees safe as well. So I think the whole COVID thing really 
accelerated digital adoption, self-service, self-install, and the use of data so that we didn't have to go into the field to learn about things. We can learn about them from acquiring data, aggregating it, and making good decisions. I just think that's a trend that's going to continue on. It's not the end game. It's just a journey of using data to really help manage our networks. Right. Yeah. The speed at which many companies have responded in all sorts of industries has been fascinating to see. And in some ways, it's an unplanned test of how strong your organization is. Because if you're just barely holding on, you're in big trouble now or have been for months. But if you're reasonably well running and you've got motivated, talented people, you could meet that challenge. And I think that's interesting. And actually, you know, for all the uh, grief that cable gets, look what's happened with broadband. I mean, I think you hit it out of the park. Customer after customer is getting huge pipes coming into their house that they never had. I mean, I'm one of millions of examples, no doubt. So that's really interesting. We would have heard much more if this wasn't where nothing is flawless, but we would have heard much more all over the place. What about Silicon Valley? When people think about technology in America, they think about Silicon Valley. And as I said earlier, and you kind of elaborated on, cable as an industry really is playing a similar type of game in terms of the underlying technological skills and the sophistication. What's the relationship between a charter or a Comcast and the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons and Apples of the world? A lot of them are our partners in a lot of ways, right? What's interesting about the cable industry, and for people who don't come from cable, new entrants to the industry have a hard time getting this, we collaborate, we don't compete. So to your example of Comcast and Charter and Altice and Cox, we don't compete with each other. We have industry organizations that help us and we drive technological advancements as an industry as opposed to as a company. And we all have our own innovative teams and we do things differently. So when it comes to the companies you called out, some of the Silicon Valley companies, a lot of these companies are our partners. So for example, we run our digital application on Apple TV box. So our customers could have an Apple TV at home and they can get our, what we call our Spectrum TV app on that device. And that's true for many other devices, Android devices, Samsung TVs, Fire Sticks and things like that from Amazon. So, you know, I like to say innovation just doesn't happen in Silicon Valley, right? It's happening all over the place. And I think the cable industry has proven that for 40 years or more since the first pay TV services were available and people were actually running cables, that the industry has been able to pivot multiple times throughout its history and be innovative using technology. Now, the products and services that come out of a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, sometimes they're things we use. Right? They're products that we buy and we use within our own businesses, but we don't compete with Google. Now, Google, a few years ago, I don't know whether they compete or not, but they, uh, where were they? Was it Kansas City or somewhere? They were putting in a fiber optic network. Anyway, I remember that was a big topic of discussion. And then they had other things to do and actually other ways to make a lot of money that they didn't have to do that. And that goes back a few years. But what I wanted to ask you about was streaming, because everyone is streaming, right? Netflix and Prime, et cetera. And so a company like Comcast owns NBC Universal. And so they have streaming. And I think they're, I'm not sure whether I read that they're planning to create some original content. And where does Charter stand on that? How diversified in the broader kind of entertainment world is Charter aiming to be? Yeah, well, you know, we don't have NBCU, that's for sure. But we do have content. We have original content, something called Spectrum Originals, and we have regional news channels like Comcast and others do. On the streaming side, our digital application is a streaming application. So our entire TV service, all of the linear channels, your sports channels, your video on demand is available in an app. What's happened, though, in the industry in the past few years is what we call these direct-to-consumer apps, right? So when you buy Disney Plus or Netflix or Hulu, that's a Netflix is selling you their application and you get it on a bunch of different devices. So this has been pretty fragmented on how people get their content. And I don't personally think it's going away. Look at the content that's being produced by some of these companies that you never even heard of. I happen to sit on the Television Emmy Committee, and we got more entrance in the last few years from Netflix and Hulu. We didn't see that before. It was primetime television, episodic television. So these other companies are building great content, and they're building direct-to-consumer applications. And I don't think that's going away. I think what's going to happen and what people need to understand is some content's available across multiple of those applications. 
So if you're looking for a show, and I do this all the time, if I'm looking to watch something, I go, where can I watch whatever? And it tells me, you can search for it, and it'll tell you it's available on one of your on-demand services, it's available on Netflix, it's available on NBCU or some other application, Peacock. So I think it's getting harder for consumers to find what they want to watch because it's not as curated as it was in the past. So I think it's an open question. I don't have an answer for where streaming is going. I just know that we as a cable company, we are making sure that our customers have access to all the streaming applications that they want, including our own. Yeah, you know, I think about it. You look at Netflix and you see what's there, or you look at Amazon Prime, or I guess Hulu, and now Disney Plus, a couple others. But those are like going to one store to see what they're selling. When in fact, maybe I want to buy, you know, I want to buy a lamp and I want to see who's got the best lamp. And that's what you're talking about, where you could look up a movie and discover it's available in three or four different places, which you could do with different websites. I think Real Good and some others do things like this. But it seems like an opportunity. I don't know whether it's an opportunity for cable or for someone else, but it seems like an opportunity. Anything that makes it easier for customers to do what you want them to do, which is watch TV and enjoy entertainment and anything that makes it easier for them, I think is a good thing. I don't know whose job it should be or who can capitalize on that opportunity. But with the kind of explosion of streaming, we both mentioned Disney Plus, but there are lots of others and it seems like there's going to be more and more. Whether there's a curation or an aggregation, kind of what Amazon does, you know, you can get anything on Amazon. You don't have to think about it. Just go to Amazon. And that's worked out pretty well for them. Do you think we'll see something like that in the TV business and the streaming of TV and other entertainment? I don't have any crystal balls, but I think that curation and aggregation of what's available is something that people need. And it'll happen when consumers don't want to pay for multiple applications or want to find other ways of getting their content. Anyway, that's all I'll say about that, but more to come. Okay, that sounds intriguing. We'll leave that there. It sure seems like a natural opportunity. Okay, so you're the CTO of a gigantic company called Charter. What is it you do? What is that job? I I know that you run many businesses, so this could take a couple hours to tell us everything you do. But what's the short description that you'll tell Aunt May and Uncle Sid here over the Thanksgiving table if we were all to be together doing such a thing? So I'll tell you something funny. It's really hard to tell people what you do when you're running a technology company or you're running a big technology company. So a lot of times when I'm at parties, I don't want to tell people that I work for the cable industry because the first thing they do is ask you how to fix their stuff, right? So I usually just say I'm a hairdresser. But yeah, the short story is my job, my whole reason for being here is to really position the company for the future from a technological standpoint. Meaning when you're in engineering and tech, you're never really working on today. I'm always working on five years out. So my job is really to plan creating that vision of where we need to go and plan how to get there. And the how to get there part is where the complexity comes in. You know, we have to incorporate all kinds of things. What's the right technical solution? What's the right business solution? Can the organization implement something like this? Can the organization operate it? Is it financially feasible? Does it fit into our strategy? So I get the fun job of saying, here's where we need to be five years, 10 years out, because this is where we're going. And I'm usually looking at building and testing technology now that I know will not become a reality for three years. So it's really long-term planning of tech. But at the same time, we have to manage what we're doing now. And I always say, and there's someone from Tuck that I talked to when I was there at the SCTE program, Chris Trimble, who talked about how you really have to be strategically minded to do innovation when you're inside a big company, because you have to keep the company running. You have to keep your customers satisfied, right? And service. And yet you're trying to make changes along a path to get you to some new place. So that's a fun part of my job. I get to think about what's coming and then decompose it all the way back to today and figure out what we need to do to get there. Right. That dichotomy, or it's not a dichotomy because it's not an either or, you got to do both of them, as you just said. In the academic world, people have been talking about that problem actually for a long time. And they use terms, sounds very academic, of course, exploration and exploitation as the two kind of, I don't know that that would ever 
cross over into the business world, those terms, but those are the essence of it. Now, there's another part of your career that's really interesting. I'd love to hear about it, what you did, why you did it. You left cable, pretty significant job, and you went to a very tiny company, and then you came back to your present job now. And could you kind of share with us, you know, where'd you go and why'd you do it? Because it's such a transition, right? From being in the mainstream industry and obviously on a fast track to very senior positions, which you already had, to this kind of tiny private equity backed startup almost, not quite, but close. Yeah, a lot of people ask me that question. What are you doing? What were you thinking? You know, it was a pretty calculated transition. So I left cable in 2014 and I left in like April of 2014 and I was planning on taking the summer off and just thinking about what I wanted to do. And I had other opportunities to go to other cable companies to do other things in the vendor community in and around the cable And I really didn't want to do that. So I forced myself to take a pause, but that pause only lasted about two days. And somebody I knew in a private equity firm called me and said, hey, we acquired this company and we need some help and, you know, yada, yada. And I said, well, it's not really something I know anything about. This is a story of my career, by the way. Every job I take, I usually start off by going, I don't know anything about this. And I went and talked to them and I said, it's interesting So I actually didn't immediately take a role. I did some consulting for them and then they asked me to come on, but I was very deliberate about wanting to do something that would really expand my knowledge and stretch me in ways that I hadn't done. I'd spent 15 years in the cable business before I left and it was very apparent to me that I was really good at what I did, but there was this whole other world of things that I wanted to learn and explore. So taking on, you know, the senior role as a CTO, and then a little while later, I took on the COO role for the small advertising technology company. I got to do some acquisitions, open offices in London, bring people in from a different company and do an integration. I got to do a lot of things that I just wouldn't have had exposure to. And I think it was deliberate and it was scary. But the biggest challenge with that was I like, where's all the resources? Right? I came from the cable industry. We have big teams and big resources and to a very small company where you had to roll your sleeves up and get things done. So I thought it was only going to be a short stint, but I wound up doing that for five and a half years, which was great. And it was successful, which is just a plus on top of that, doing something new and actually making some impact with the company. It was really right. fun. So I have to ask you, what was the reaction of the startup crowd to this experienced person, not just experienced, but coming from cable, very old line type of industry? I mean, did they give you a hard time? Yeah, I was a little old school, right? Yeah, but you know what? It really doesn't matter. When you're in tech, the right practices for software, managing your company, diligence around financial decisions, diligence around good tech, managing teams the right way. Those are kind of universal things. So I think a lot of people pushed back when I first came, like, uh-oh, you know, new person coming. And I made real change happen. The most satisfying thing for me was, you know, as the years went on and then I was leaving and we put some other people in place, people came to me and said, you know, we didn't really believe in this at first, but you really changed the way we work and we really appreciate that, right? So there was a real acknowledgement and it really was just people just needed to modernize a little. It wasn't something really systemically wrong. It was just, you know, you just get used to doing what you're doing. So growth only happens when you think differently. And that was what I find so valuable about that experience. Yeah. And you said one other thing about it, which is that it was planned almost premeditated as a stage. I'm going to finish the sentence. You tell me if this is what you mean. As a stage in your career to give you a set of skills or experiences you could not have had unless you were CEO of a giant company. To enable you to go back to cable, did you always think you would do that at an even more senior position? Nope. I did not think I was going back to cable. I thought I might be doing a whole bunch of other things. But I say this to people a lot too. Don't discount your network. You know, if you're really good to people over the years, those people come back and find you later on. So um, when things were changing at Charter, they had some executive change going on for retirements and reasons, you know, people called me up. What do you think about this? So very fortunate. When you had those um, conversations and interviews, and for a job at CTO level, you probably spoke to board members as well, and obviously with the CEO a fair amount of time. What did they ask you about your stint in the startup world? What were they curious about? 
they asked me what the heck I was doing. <laughs> you know, what were you doing there? What did you do? And the best thing about that was I could talk to real business practice. And, you know, I talked a lot about in that role, I actually used data science to turn the business around. We used technology to take over some functions that people were doing that not so well and things like that. They asked me what I thought about the next generation of technologies, voice, 5G, all the stuff that we're involved in now. I don't know if I was interviewing, I'll use the air quotes, interviewing. I don't know if I was having that conversation and I had not been in a smaller company experiencing all these things. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten the role or been asked to take the role. Yeah, that's very interesting because there wouldn't be a lot of people with your background and experience that have had that additional type of experience. That would certainly make it much less uh, common. Rare, probably, is my guess. Is this something you would recommend or advise? At least, I mean, every situation is different, obviously, but as something to consider, this type of, I mean, it's kind of like a radical shift. I realize this technology is still technology, but just the size of the company and the nature of how businesses run, is this something that you think would be maybe something more people should be thinking about, especially as they think about a long, kind of a long run in managing a career? Yeah, I mean, you got to play the long game for sure, right? This is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think, first of all, it's fun to do something different. And I do talk to a lot of folks and, and actually had a very senior friend of mine wanting to take over another role in her company. And we were talking about this and the advice is, you know, first of all, are you going to love it? Is your stomach in a knot with excitement thinking about what you could do? Because if you're not engaged and you're not excited about it, then it doesn't really matter if you're in a big company or small company. So you got to kind of pay attention to what you like to do. But I think a change at certain points in your career is really important. And it's important to do because without that, and you know, I joke about it sometimes coming back to the cable world, like, oh, you remember... I was in the real world for five years <laughs> and people, they laugh at me. Like, what are you talking about? Go, you know, it's really good to understand fierce competition, to have to manage your dollars and your payroll every single quarter, right? Really pay attention. So for people who want to have a really long career, I think it's really important to get some diversity of experience if you can. And of course, if you can means, you know, does your lifestyle let you do that? And, you know, people have obligations and families and all these other things that they use in their decision-making. But I think you just have to scare the crap out of yourself a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea of uh, taking yourself out of your comfort zone. Everybody says that. That's like old news, but you, you actually did it. And the learning opportunity is great. Uh, I think that's the thing, especially as we kind of look forward into what business is like and leadership is like today, but especially as we go further and further on, Having those types of um, seminal experiences, I think are going to be even more important in preparing people for uh, very senior roles. Well, Stephanie, we're just about out of time. I'd like to ask one kind of final question about advice, what advice you'd give. I'm sure you've been asked this in some different form, but the advice question that I have is advice to yourself. When you were, I say, 21 years old, pick the age you like, but I mean, no, when you were young, just starting out, probably just in school or about to finish school, if you could magically go back in time next to the 21-year-old Stephanie and lean over and say, if there's one thing you want to know or one thing you want to do or not do, or there's something you need to think about, or there's a thing that maybe, you know, you might not think about the world this way, but this is the way it is, or whatever it happens to be, what would pop into your mind? What would you share to the 21-year-old Stephanie? It's an interesting question. You know, what resonates with me is, I, you know, I did spend a lot of my early career feeling anxious and worrying about my own capability and what other people thought and was I good enough and strong enough and smart enough? And I think I would have said to the, you know, the 21-year-old me as I was, you know, and maybe entering college and getting through college would be like, don't worry about it, you're going to kick their ass. <laughs> That's great. I love you know, that. Just, just to get a little more strength because I think in the early, you know, and this is true of a lot of people, there's just self-doubt. Now I spend a lot of time even training my teams on mindfulness and, and a lot of different practices to help them really be present and make good decisions. Like, you know, you get past all of that angst when you really settle into yourself and at 21 and, you know, that age, just, you just don't have it. Right. And that speaks to the confidence level you talked about earlier for everyone, but especially for women. You kind of share an interesting anecdote about the guy that says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. No problem. The woman is overanalyzing. You could easily see that advice you're giving even more important for young women than young men even, although I think it applies to everyone. And be authentic, right? You have to uh -huh. be yourself. 
because you can't be anyone else. And like, I think I mentioned earlier, it's just exhausting if you're trying to be something you're not as a leader. And I find it's very, very refreshing when people understand that you're just a person, everybody's a person, and we need to communicate that way. I think it's a powerful point about authenticity. People, it's another one of those words people toss around all the time. But that actually, there's something there that really means a lot, which is you can't pretend to be someone else. You can't, you know, I think about my early teaching career, like when I went to Dartmouth, the business school, fantastic teachers, it's world-class place. And I would sit in on different class sessions, even in areas I, had, I knew nothing about or hardly anything about, a finance class, an accounting class, a marketing class. And I'd see these world-class professors and I'm thinking to myself, well, I can't do what she's doing. I can't do what he's doing. And it didn't take me long to realize I don't have to do what they're doing. I can pick up maybe some tips, but more of what you get is the gestalt of what it looks like when somebody's in command of their work. And that's what they were. And that happened to be teaching. You know, that's just the example. It could be anything. When somebody's in command of their work, of their space, it's inspirational. And it's something that you can say, well, why, why can't you do that? Stephanie, thank you so much for spending time with me and uh, all of our listeners on the SIDCast. What a great conversation. You be well and uh, wish you a great end of the year. And hopefully um, 2021, will uh, the world will start fixing itself at a much faster pace than we've seen. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.